Hello, and welcome to the Addicts Anonymous podcast. I'm your host, Jamar. Today's episode 121, and we're interviewing Katie Kay. How are you doing today, Katie? I'm doing great. Thank you. All right. That's glad to hear that. Um, so let's dive in and get started here. Tell me about growing up in your childhood. Um, so I grew up in 2003. I grew up in a little town called Suffer Hills, Florida. I had a pretty nuclear normal family. My dad is a journalist. He was a journalist for the Gators through the Tampa Bay Times and my mom was a teacher and I have an older sister and a younger brother and everything was pretty normal growing up at a very happy childhood. We were middle class. We weren't really struggling financially at all. Um, I did since my dad was in journaling. Um, he was gone most of the time. He was probably gone two, three days out of the week, some weeks. And he was all around a very like angry man growing up. He would take a lot of his anger out on us or just get frustrated really easily. And when he would be gone, it would be to the point where me, my little brother and my older sister would be happy that he was gone. What so kind of stuff think- would he do? How, how would he show his anger? Um, We would just like ask him bring it if we asked him a simple question like throwing things around or issues and stuff like that and so which I realized kind of led to me being an angrier person in my childhood um and I had an older sister and we shared this room actually um and she when she got into probably middle school is when she started bullying me a lot she would pick on things like my weight the way I look we were both dancers so we were constantly competing throughout that and I'd say my sister bullying me and picking on me constantly every day and making fun of me with her friends really impacted my mental health a lot I fell into um, a series of eating disorders, starting with anorexia. I was afraid to gain weight and would eat as little as I possibly could. Um, And then eventually it led into bulimia, where I was throwing up anything that I did eat. What was the first age you started doing that stuff? I was in sixth grade, so probably about 11 or 12. That's a young age to be very conscious about your weight. Exactly. And I think I know the feeling though. I used to, I used to be a real, I mean, I'm not skinny by any means right now, but I used to be a real heavy set guy mm-hmm. when I was younger. And so I know the feeling of being picked on. And I never got into anorexia until later in life though. But that's crazy that you started so young. Yeah. I have another very young age and being a dancer, I was a dancer since I was four growing up in that dancing is such a competitive sport And almost everyone, whether they realize it or not, has an eating disorder. And eating disorders in and of itself is very competitive. So, like, everyone's constantly seeing who can get the skinniest or who can go the longest without eating. Um, So that's why I felt like I was just in a very toxic environment um, with my sister and then in the dance studio with my body image problems, which then led to depression and anxiety. I struggled with that a lot and was in and out of mental facilities, psych wards. Um, From sixth grade up until a couple months ago, I was in and out of psych wards and stuff like that. And just the deteriorating of my mental health. Would you stay at the, when you say psych ward, would you be staying in the hospital overnight or for a few days or was it outpatient? It was a Baker Act, so a mandatory 72-hour hold. What are you in, in Florida? In a state facility. Hmm? Were you in Florida? I'm in Florida, yeah. Yeah, I've heard. The only reason I even knew that is someone's told me that term before. I think in New Jersey, we call it a 5150. I could yeah, be I know in other places it's called that. Yeah, or it's just a term I've heard before. But for people who don't mm-hmm. know, that's where you basically against your will or um what do you call it put into the hospital for what 72 hours yes if they think you are at risk of hurting yourself or hurting someone else it's good that they have that 
it, it is good that they have that, but it's also, yeah. it's a very toxic <clears throat> environment. They really don't do a lot for you. A lot of it is just an insurance thing. They'll keep you as long as they can. So they get your insurance money when you really should have been discharged a couple days ago. Um, so I never really had a great experience with mental facilities or things like that, but I had to go. So there was nothing else I could really do about that. But um, I would say things really started going downhill when I met my first girlfriend. Their name is Hayden. I met them when I was a freshman and they were. They? You mean a she or they was it two people they're non-binary you're saying they they were two people they one person they them pronouns are non-binary they don't specifically specifically go by yeah i'm old i'm still learning all that new stuff so someone's considered two people it's not that they're considered two people if someone's non-binary they don't necessarily fit into the gender norm of male or female so they okay. don't want to use the pronoun she or him. So they use the pronoun they. Oh, look at that. I learned something new every day. Yeah, every day. <laughs> but um, I started dating them when I was, I would say, about 15 years old. And they were 19 at the time. So there's already a really huge age gap between us. And um, the relationship in and of itself was just very toxic they were constantly pulling me out of school they introduced me to marijuana and just throughout the relationship I lost a lot of the relationship with my friends and family I pushed everyone away and I didn't have anyone and when I turned 16 I decided to move out of my hometown with them to Tampa Florida and that's where things got really really bad um I was being introduced to drugs like Xanax and psychedelics and cocaine. And I had all these mental issues that I never really unpacked in therapy, I guess, or was medicated for. So I was using Xanax, psychedelics, um, painkillers, cocaine to self-medicate for everything that I had been through. So at 16, you were able to leave home legally? Um, it was quite a battle. My parents did not like the person I was with. And I, it was basically just me throwing a fit until they had no choice but to let me do what I want because I was so out of control. So my, and what my parents. What would you do? What do you mean by out of control? Um, I one I would skip school every day I skipped at least one class every day and that would drive them crazy because my mom's a teacher my parents both went to college um and I was on track for a full ride scholarship to any college in Florida that I wanted to but because I skipped so much I I lost that so just with the school thing it was out of control and I remember one time my mom not letting me go see my partner or whatever and I just threw a fit I called the cops and I baker acted myself just to hurt my parents and that's the point where it's out of control because I was baker acting myself putting myself in a facility just so they would have to pay this big amount of money just to kind of throw it in their faces that they wouldn't oh if you just let me see my girlfriend then none of this would have happened if that makes any kind of sense I was just well, yeah, doing we, a lot we of... do stupid things when we're mad. You know, obviously mm-hmm. looking back, I'm sure that's not a great thing. Um, but yeah, we do crazy things when we're pissed off. Yeah. And I just I distanced myself because of that so much from my family and so much from my friends that it was just me and this person. And I was codependent on them so much that I could not see straight. And it took me quite literally like three years to get out of this very toxic relationship um and just throughout the relationship there was a lot of things um I was sexually assaulted in Miami I had and I went through a miscarriage who uh who assaulted you um it was someone I didn't know we were 
me and a couple of friends were in Miami over spring break. I was, I was 14 or 15 at the time. And it was a group of guys that were hanging out with us and supplying us with alcohol that none of us knew. And somehow I got separated off with one of the men and I was sexually assaulted and raped on a rooftop of a hotel in Miami. And it wasn't till about, I want to say like a month or two later, I knew I was pregnant. I was at a, it was like a six to eight hour dance rehearsal. We had one dance rehearsal to get this dance together to go perform it like a month later. And I miscarried, like I had like my dance tights on my leotard. I was 14 years old and I had a miscarriage and like bled all through my tights and had to change at the dance studio. And that caused like a lot of trauma that I didn't really tell anyone. I think I told maybe one person, the girl that was with me at the dance studio about it, but I never told anyone else about it. What did everyone else just think you had your period? Um, like you said, you were bleed. Did you bleed during like practice when people saw you? Yes, people definitely saw me bleeding, and I definitely put it off as like, "Oh, I just started my period. It was fine. Nobody really cared." I think another girl gave me a pair of tights to change into, but I did not. Except my friend that I was with, she's actually my neighbor. She was my neighbor my whole life. We danced, went to the same school and everything. She was the only person I to tell anyone else. Well, so, at least one person. Yeah, that was just um, added trauma that fed into all the other problems I had and Like I said, that's why I think I started using drugs in the first place. I didn't know I had a lot of trauma, a lot of mental health issues that I didn't know how to deal with. So being able to take Xanax and I, when I did Xanax, I would black out, being able to black out and not remember anything. I just, I thought that was the best way to deal with it was through drugs. Unfortunately, we hear that. All too often with addicts have some trauma. We end up turning to drugs and alcohol to numb ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So during this whole time, going back when you were younger, how was your social life? I was a I was very social. Like from elementary school, I was doing everything. I was doing student council. I was friends with everyone. I remember like making like little clubs like throughout elementary school I always did dance when I went into middle school I did every sport that I could I did cheerleading I did um basketball volleyball I did track I tried to do everything I could while still doing dance I had a lot of friends I I don't I hate this word but I would have considered myself like popular in elementary school in the beginning of middle school But during middle school and high school is where I started to, I was diagnosed with ODD, which is oppositional defiant disorder. And I also unknowingly had bipolar disorder and borderline personality disorder. So all of that just made me extremely impulsive. And I ended up just starting drama with like like every single person in my middle school or high school. I was constantly in the office every day. And I think I was just like trying to have attention draw to, drawn to me by um, creating so much drama and stuff like that to distract myself from other problems going on in my life. But um, that's when I really started losing a lot of friends and stuff like that. And that's also when I started doing a lot of drugs. So I was very social and a very happy kid, a very outgoing kid until I was in about like sixth or seventh grade. And then I developed all those impulse control issues. And I also developed really bad social anxiety. And just, I was not a happy kid anymore. I was a very rude person, someone nobody really wanted to be around. I went from being extremely social to very isolative. And um, I was going to say something else. Uh, when I was like all throughout 
elementary school, a bunch of teachers would call me smiley because I just had this big smile on my face all the time. And I was always such a happy kid. And then going into middle school, my mom and other people would be like, like, what happened? Like, where did your smile go? I smiled in no pictures, like none of my school pictures. I just wouldn't smile. And I just became like extremely depressed and nobody happened. Yeah, it sucks. Mm -hmm. So what kind of things would your ODD make you do? Because I remember my ex-girlfriend, I think she told me she had that. And it was literally anything you said to her or suggested, she just did the opposite. She just exactly. because. Like, yeah, I remember this and that's example. basically what it is. It's, um, it's what, my big thing was having problems with authority. So I would, I remember getting in like absolutely horrible fights with teachers, just like, just because I could, I remember getting suspended one time because this girl like was trying to fight me all week. And I told my like school resource officer, I'm like, yo, this girl is trying to fight me. I can't get in another fight this year. I've already been suspended like three times. So I went to someone, I told him she still ended up fighting me. And I fought her back because that's the type of person I am. I'm very aggressive at that time. So I remember going to the guidance counselor's office and she was just braiding me. And on the walkie-talkie, you could hear our resource officer saying, like, we told her not to mess with Katie. Like, we warned her and stuff like that. And I remember looking at my guidance counselor and just looking at her and being like, you're literally incompetent. Like this older woman like that I'm supposed to respect and that has never done anything to me. I'm like sitting here calling her incompetent. I'm calling her an idiot. I'm calling her a bitch. Just being like disrespectful for no reason at all. And I would do that like a lot with teachers. If I felt like the slightest bit of disrespect from them, I would be disrespectful back. Um, getting in like political fights with teachers and taking it way too far just because I could or I wanted something to argue about. But yeah, a lot of problems with authority is what I went through. We've got a lot in common. Yeah. <laughs> we have a lot in common. A lot of the stuff you're seeing, uh, saying really resonates with me. Mm-hmm. So... Once you started going down, down, the less smiling, the less smiling, were you aware of it at that time? Or do you just look back and see it? Like at that time, were you, do you remember getting worse? Like I actually remember getting worse and worse in my bipolar. Like I remember that out of nowhere, I think it was my junior year, it kind of hit me where I would start calling out of school. Mm-hmm. So did you, did you recognize yeah, it that definitely... you were heading a, down a negative path? I definitely did. I can, because like in rehab and everything, they usually make you, I don't know everyone's experience, but mine, like they made us write out their like our life story. And I remember writing out mine and being able to pinpoint where everything went wrong. And I definitely remember like probably about seventh grade, just realizing like, I'm not happy anymore. And I don't know what happened. Um, so yeah, I definitely remember like something just being wrong and when things weren't getting like, because for so long from sixth, seventh, eighth, I'm like, when am I just going to be happy? Like, I really can't take this anymore because I didn't remember the last time I was going to be happy. Probably when I was like a freshman is when it hit me that like, I was kind of obsessed with being depressed. Like I didn't want to be happy. I was so like, my big thing growing up was about attention. I always wanted attention. So I'm like, I finally have like this mental disorder that's causing like my family to give me attention and other people to see that I have a problem. Why would I, why would I want to get better if I'm finally getting the attention that nobody ever gave me, if that makes sense? No, it totally like, does. I, I wanted to stay depressed and I wanted to stay in my illness so other people could notice that I'm not okay like I wanted to get as bad as I possibly could like and I started 
I started self-harming, I want to say, when I was in sixth grade, just for the sole purpose that people would see I was not okay. Not because I had any desire to hurt myself. It was just I saw it on social media. I'm like, oh, this is what people do when they're depressed. This is like how someone will visibly see that I'm not okay. And I started self-harming just for the sole reason to get attention. And then I got to the point where I couldn't stop. What kind of feeling is that the self-harm that you couldn't stop? A lot of it's um, release. Like after you cut yourself or burn yourself, a lot of it's just this automatic release. And then the other feeling for me was that I deserved it. Because I would like say really harmful things to a lot of people. Um, and just be explosively mad. And then... I remember saying like awful things to my family or my partner or whatever, like horrible things that I would never, ever say if I was in the right mind. And then after that, immediately I'd self-harm because I thought I deserved it. Or after my sexual assault, I would self-harm a lot because I thought I deserved it because I thought I was disgusting. And then, like I said, there were the other amount of times where I did it strictly just for attention. Did you ever get the attention that you desired? <clears throat> um, sometimes I did. Uh, a lot of it got to the point where it was like cutting and stuff like that is so normalized that people would see it and not say anything because that's what you're supposed to do. You're not supposed to point out other people's scars on their arms just because it became so normalized. But definitely the attention from like my family that I wanted for them to see that I was struggling. Like, I definitely got that from, like, my mom, my dad, my grandma. So that must have felt good, getting what you wanted. Exactly. And then, oh, I'm getting what I want now. Like, why am I going to stop? Yeah. No, it was just um, a cycle for a while. Yeah. Completely understand that. I mean, it's just logic. It seems logical at the time. Okay, I want attention. This is getting me attention. Keep doing it and I'll keep getting attention. Exactly. And it's not to like, I think the last time I self-termed was when I was in rehab and I did it in rehab and I was like, wow, like this is not giving me the same feeling I usually do. I don't like this anymore. And now I went and got a tattoo on my wrist yesterday and there's a burn right next to it and then scars just all on my arm. And I'm like, God, I hate this. Like, I want this to go away. I don't want to look at this anymore. So it's a big regret now that I ever harm myself because there are scars now that like aren't going to go away and I'm going to have to live with it for the rest of my life. So they're visible to the, uh, where do you have them on your wrist? I have, um, I have a, a burns and scars on my wrist and then I have scars on my leg too. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's so sad. I have someone in my family that was doing that. They're mm-hmm. supposed to be better now. So. Yeah. So it's very rough. Yeah. I can imagine. I can imagine. Um, so what did you do once you graduated high school? Where was your life headed? Um, so when I was a senior, I had already moved out, moved to Tampa, which was about an hour away from my high school. So I dropped, I didn't drop out of high school. I did online school and I dropped out of the program that I was in because I was in something called the Cambridge program, which is kind of like everything's AP, everything's real, really advanced. I dropped out of that, that I had been doing and working on since sixth grade the last year and I did online school and I had no friends or anything and to be quite honest my mom she's a teacher she did most of my online work because I just would not do it because I was either high all the time depressed or like was out doing god knows what but um that's kind of where I was when I was a senior I was already I was working probably 40 hours a week I was working a full-time job like school was just not my priority at all I didn't go to any prom I did not get graduation pictures I didn't have a graduation party I didn't walk across the stage at my graduation that is the biggest regret of my life 
I wish I would have slowed down and taken my time to actually enjoy my high school experience instead of rushing to work too soon because I was so worried about money and growing up and being where my 21 year old partner was at while I'm 17. And so just being caught up in that, being around a lot of older people all the time is where I started using like Xanax really heavily, like almost like an everyday thing, like getting blacked out every night. And I remember showing up to work one time and my friend had Xanax and we both did Xanax and I blacked out at work and they called me the next day and they're like, you're suspended from work. And that was the most embarrassing thing of my life. And just like being zanned out like random places that I don't remember probably like embarrassing the fuck out of myself like that's where I was at when I was a senior what was life like once you actually graduated where'd you go or what'd you do um me me and my partner me and my partner lived in like college apartments And we had a couple roommates and me being impulsive, I started an argument with the roommate one time. We got kicked out, had to go live with my mom. I didn't hear you. What'd you do with the roommate? We just had an argument, a really bad argument, where it basically ended me like kind of kind of threatening her, kind of not. Like I told her I wish she would like die or whatever, something like that. That got us kicked out and we had to move in with my mom and we were just struggling financially all the time fighting all the time neither of us were happy and it got to the point where I was trying to kick her out telling them that like I didn't want to be with them anymore and they would just like straight up be like no like I don't want to break up so we're not breaking up so that was a cycle for a good like six seven months until I finally like could not take it anymore and kicked her out and she was gone um why did you stay with her if you were if you didn't I mean do you look back and see because if she's just telling no we're not breaking up is there a reason that you stayed um like from being in therapy the best way I can explain it is having a trauma bond and like being addicted to the back and forth chaos and stuff like that and I hadn't I hadn't been with anyone else I had been with them for four years that was all I knew I had alienated all my friends and family they were the only person I had and the only person I was comfortable with um and then there was a big thing that they were supplying me drugs so why would I want to leave because I was already so addicted to them so after like she finally left I I have bipolar, I have bipolar disorder, bipolar mania. So I go through manic episodes and I went through a really bad manic episode when we broke up and they were finally out of the house. Um, I quit my, I had a really good job at a makeup store and I loved it. And I quit to become a stripper with one of my friends, which is the worst idea I've ever had in my life. Um, I did it for about four months I was on a different drug every time I went to the strip club and danced I had really bad anorexia I'm 5'8 and I weighed 90 pounds wow yeah I was 5'8 and weighed 90 pounds when I danced there and dancing in an environment like that obviously is not going to help my body image issues at all if anything it made my body image a lot worse well that must have taken that must have taken a lot of, I, I don't know if the word is courage, mm-hmm. because I can't imagine getting up in front of people and, you know, taking my clothes. It's something that I don't think I'd be confident. I wouldn't build the confidence enough to do it. I wasn't confident in myself at all. It was just one, like, I need money. This is how I make quick money. And two, um, I was on drugs the whole time. So like kind of being on like psychedelics every night or um built up my confidence and made it to where it was okay for a couple hours I was fucked up enough to do what I had to do to make money so that was it ruined my mental health ruined my body image issues it 
like it made me feel very stripped of my innocence like because there's a lot of women who can go out there and like hustle men be so confident make a lot of money and talk to men and be very outgoing and stuff like that I was just not that person I could not go up to men and like I can do that it's not the person I was if you can do that like props to you but I could not I couldn't do it it was very bad for my mental health so after about four or five months I had to stop and it affected me for a really long time after that I like couldn't look at myself in the mirror for a really long time I showered or got dressed like with the lights off because I did not want to look at myself I was so skinny so I had like bruises everywhere on me from like the pole and the stage and everything like that um being sexually assaulted every night it wasn't it just wasn't good for me or my mental health and just pushed me farther down into addiction And um, I remember what I, this was when I had broken up with my partner and I remember having a really bad trip on acid when I was working at the club one night and I obviously couldn't drive home as on acid and I would drive home intoxicated all the time, but um, I just felt like I couldn't because it was acid or a psychedelic and I was hallucinating things. So I didn't think that was a good idea. So even though me and my partner were broken up, um, I asked them to come pick me up and they did. And they had already gotten themselves addicted to Coke and I had never done Coke before. So after that, I kind of got addicted to Coke because they were doing it around me all the time and offering it to me, supplying it. And so that turned into an on and off thing with me and her. We weren't back together, but we would just see each other all the time. I would go and hang out with her and just a lot of arguments. And it was December 27th of this past year on Christmas I was we got in an argument I was trying to leave their house and they pulled me out of my car like stole my gas card that I had and like were not letting me leave to the point I had to call the cops and they were arrested for domestic violence the next day um I got a call from the police department saying that they posted bail and I was very scared I was very anxious I went and got Xanax I took three of them blacked out apparently this is all from the police report I had drove to a gas station about 45 minutes away from me and my car like had a flat and I'm barred out don't remember any of this and I asked the guy at the pump next to me to like help me change my tire and he was really nice he was like sure I was sitting in my front seat of my car and he came over and he's like hey you're tight he to tell me like my tire was done and I was OD'd and I was um essentially dead and they had to call the cops and I woke up in the hospital and they told me they had to Narcan me four times to wake me back up and that was the first overdose I had ever experienced so it was on opiates it was on benzos Xanax yeah Narcan works for benzos Mm-hmm. I've never heard that my, Narcan was for only opiates. I I remember looking at the um thing and I had taken Xanax that night. It's all very much a blur, but I was told I was Narcan four times and in the police report I was Narcan four times. My um my thought process was that it had fentanyl in it. And that's why I had to be Narcan. That is a very good chance. That was my, um, because I, I had only, yeah, I had only taken, I believe three of them and I had, I would eat like six bars for breakfast, no problem. And I had only had three of them and they weren't like the higher dosage one. It was just like the white bars. So, and I had never had a problem with that. So my automatic thought was fentanyl. Well, if the Narcan works, that's definitely the reason. Because Narcan yeah. for opiates. Mm-hmm. So I guess that was the issue, was the fact that it had fentanyl in it. Yeah, they put fentanyl in everything nowadays. You mm-hmm. can't. It's hard to uh, know what's going to happen, what's not. I remember being in active addiction one time, buying like, um, I think like a half gram of cocaine. And the way I knew to test my product was to like put it over my flashlight. And if it has like black in it or whatever, then 
it's laced or whatever. And I remember doing that and having black spots in it, have fentanyl in it, and handing it back to him and going to find another plug because I didn't want to overdose off fentanyl again, let alone just get clean from drugs, you know? So tell us about when you decided to get sober. Um, it was a month to the day after the first overdose I just told you about. A month to the day later, I overdosed again. I had mixed Xanax and cocaine, which you're not supposed to do. And I being like, I think I was 18 at the time. I didn't know that. I didn't know you're not supposed to mix an upper and a downer. And that's extremely dangerous. Um, I had done both and my mom walked into my room and I was just like nodded out and my mom has always like supported me and knows everything I went through and she was just talking to me she's like are you hungry do you want me to make you something to eat and I just like mumbled like pizza rolls or something she goes to make me pizza rolls and she comes back in my room and I'm just like passed out and I'm not waking up and she's like hitting me in the face punching me in the face and I will not wake up so she ended up having to call um the ambulance and when the cops got in there and tried waking me up I woke up but it was serious enough to the point where they took me to the hospital and earlier that day I had totaled my car because I was barred out and was driving somewhere and so I had said earlier when I crashed my car I called my mom like I want to kill myself just being mad and so when they took me in for my overdose my mom had told them that I said earlier that I wanted to kill myself so she's thinking that this overdose is intentional so after that I get Baker acted and when I went in the first day I was very um what's the word I was just very combative like I slept all day I was coming down They were like, Caitlin, do you want to eat? And be like, no, fuck off. Caitlin, do you want to see the doctor? Get the fuck out of my room. Caitlin, do you want to try to come eat something? No, get the fuck out. Leave me the fuck alone. And so, and I, and I remember waking up like the third day. I'm like, okay, I've been here three days. I can probably fucking like leave tomorrow. And I went over and I'm like, okay, it's been my three days or whatever. Like, when do I get out? And they're like, oh, like you were so combative the first three days we've extended your Baker Act. And they extended it for like six or seven days. I believe I was there for six. And I would see the doctor for maybe five, 10 minutes every day. And he'd be like every day, like, you need to go to rehab. And I'd be like, no, I'm not going to rehab. Like, I don't have a problem. I don't do drugs every day. Like, that was my thing. Like, I don't do it every day. That was my excuse for not being an addict. Or like, I don't do IV drugs. So I'm not an addict. I'm not, I don't do heroin. I don't do meth. I'm not an addict. So that was my thought process for a long time. And then it got to the point where they're like, we're not releasing you unless you go to rehab. Like you're just going to stay in here longer if you don't go to rehab. And I, that psych ward was the worst one I've ever been to. And I desperately wanted to get out of there so bad. I was like, okay, I'll go to rehab. And I was fully planning on getting out of the psych facility and not doing rehab. I'm, I was like, I'm going to get out and just tell them I'm not fucking doing it. I'm not going to rehab. And then I got out. And I was supposed to go to rehab in two days after I got out of the psych ward. And I was just like talking to my mom and a lot of people. And I ultimately decided in my head, like, okay, maybe this is what's best for me. So I went to a rehab in Seminole Heights, Tampa for a month after my second overdose. I went into rehab for a month and I did really, really well in rehab. I didn't really have cravings or anything. Every, like, I hate to say this, but a lot of people really loved me. I was a young, I was the youngest one in there. Um, I just like tried to put the most into rehab to get the most out of it. Like, I was really at every class, like, taking notes. Like, I really didn't want to struggle with it anymore. And the one thing that they, like, tell you when you go, when you get out of rehab, because there's the 12 steps. They're like, don't 13 step. Don't get with someone else and, like, rehab. Don't, you know what I mean? Like, don't start Mm -hmm. dating someone else in rehab. And that's what a lot of me and my friends did. We all, like, met a guy from rehab and started talking to them. And then basically me and this guy I met in rehab had a big falling out and I had a really big falling out with a lot of 
my friends in rehab that I had made, a lot of people were relapsing and stuff like that. And so like, I'd say about like a month and a half after I got out of rehab, I ended up relapsing. And I think like my relapse could have gotten gone a completely different direction. Like I remember I was doing like my relapse was Molly and cocaine and it was both. And the only reason I stopped was because like I started not being able to breathe. And I think that fear of overdosing again, like scared me into like being able to stop doing lines or whatever and like leave the situation I was in. And like, I went home and I told my mom about it. I told my sponsor about it and I was able to work through it. And so like, I think about that all the time. I think like my relapse could have gone very differently. I could have just like continued doing it. I'd probably still be doing drugs right now. But like, I'm very glad like I was able to stop myself and leave the situation and call my support system and talk through it and not feel the need to go back out and do drugs again. Now that you're sober, do you have the things you need in place? Are you working a program? Do you um, have a direction that you're heading? And do you like, do you have any help? Do you go to um, meetings anymore or no? That that's an, I have a very, I think a very different perspective than a lot of people when it comes to recovery. Because in my rehab and like the NA meetings I would go to after that, they were very like, you have to get a sponsor. You have to do the 12 steps multiple times. You have to go to 90 meetings in 90 days. You, you always have to go to meetings. And that just like was very overwhelming to me. And I didn't think like I necessarily needed all of that to stay clean or stay sober like they just made it sound like that is truly the only way to do it and if you try to do it any other way you will relapse and that was the funny thing to me is when I did have a sponsor and I was going to 90 meetings and I was going to a meeting every day I was doing the 12 steps that's when I relapsed that's when I relapsed and then a month ago I moved to Nashville. I started a job as a caretaker. Um, I just like consume myself and work. Um, I do have a higher power. Um, I'm a Christian. Just indulging myself in that and work and around people who actually cared about me is what helped me stay sober or helped me stay clean. And I haven't relapsed since then. But it was when I was trying to like do someone else's program that wasn't gonna work for me is when I relapsed when I started doing things that worked for me is when I realized I was able to stay clean so I I don't have the belief that you have to go to a meeting every day you have to get a sponsor you have to do the step work to stay clean and that's the only way I don't think that at all and I also don't I I believe in like canner recovery using like medical marijuana in your recovery. I believe in like MATs and stuff like that. And I know a lot of people don't. Um, but my perspective of it is that like, it's your recovery. So like do what's going to work from you. Don't do what everyone is telling you to do just because that's what everyone says works. If that works for you, if the 12 steps and your sponsor and going to meetings every day, like works for you, that's great. If um, using MATs helps you stay clean, then that's great too. I just think it's whatever helps you stay clean is great. It's your program. And I think you should be able to like help design what works for you, if that makes sense. No, totally. I believe in a lot of what you just said. I think at the end of the day, your ultimate goal should be abstinence. But if along the way you need medically assisted treatment and things like that, do it by all means do it. Mm -hmm. And you, you are sober because it's like you said, it is your recovery. You know, what works best for you. Exactly. Yeah. Cause I'm a believer in plant-based medicines. You know, if it's plant-based, that's okay. As long as you're not doing anything to, you know, like, like cigarettes there, it's not just plant-based. There's so much other shit in there. Mm -hmm. 
You know what I mean? There's stuff that they throw in that's just crazy. Exactly. Like, um, I've, I've smoked weed since I was 14 and it never like led me to having the problem that like Xanax and cocaine did. Like I didn't get arrested or have to like go to psych treatments when I was smoking weed. I've just never had that problem. It helps me with my appetite from having an eating disorder. It helps me with my social anxiety and stuff like that. That's the only reason that I smoke marijuana. I have cut it down a lot because I was smoking like probably four times a day every day. I've cut it down a lot to where I just use like a Delta 8 pen, which is legal now, or I'm smoking like medical marijuana from a dispensary, like maybe once a day. But yeah, I like the Delta 8. It's, it's, it's something that it can help you with anxiety. I exactly. And it's not like, it's not a really like intense, like where you're high. It's more just like, it calms your mind a little bit. Exactly. So that's why I like it. And it's not for everyone. Marijuana can definitely become like a gateway drug for a lot of people, but that's just, that's not my experience with it. I think anything you do the first time, like the first drug you use, that can always be a gateway. It could be cigarettes. It could be alcohol. Mm -hmm. It could be marijuana. It could be cocaine. Whatever you use first usually opens up the doors to other things. It's not just weed. It's like this somehow huge thing that is just a starting point for everybody. No, it's whatever you start with is typically your gateway drug. And mine was nicotine. Mine was nicotine. I started with nicotine. Yeah, you get a little buzz from nicotine. You feel a little high and you say, well, I can imagine what weed does for me. And then you do Mm -hmm. weed and I can imagine what Coke will do. But it all started with that first cigarette, not the first puff of weed. Exactly. So what do you do nowadays to stay sober? How do you maintain your sobriety? Um, a lot of mine is one, having a really good support system. So yeah. my sister is a huge person in my recovery because she has seen it from the beginning. And I chose to like go move into an apartment with her to keep myself accountable. And she does a great job about that. She holds me accountable a lot. Um, My mom and my dad are extremely supportive. So is my little brother. Um, I have a lot of friends who are very helpful in my recovery. Um, Just making sure that the relationships, like I choose to involve myself in, whether it be like friendships or acquaintances or romantic relationships with other people, I always have to make sure that one, they're not using because if someone else is using, I'm not going to be able to say no. Um, and just make sure that they're completely supportive in my recovery, because if they're not supportive in my recovery, then they're just not someone I need to surround myself with. Um, another thing is I, I like to work a lot. I like to work a lot to distract myself. And I love the job I have. I've always wanted to like help people and take care of people. And I'm a private caretaker for this woman. She has Parkinson's and she like suffers from like dyskinesia and stuff like that. And I love her. I love my job. I love being able to help her and be able to know that like someone is relying on me, which is something I would have never like, I would have never expected to have a job like this where people rely on me every day. And this woman quite literally relies on me to live her life. Um, and I just would have never expected that because nobody was able to rely on me. I, nobody could just, nobody could rely on me for anything. And now having a job that, um, someone's counting on me to come in every day is a very big change in all of that. Oh, I can imagine. And the people that like before, because it's kind of, it's not like a family business, but my sister works for them too. Like my cousin is the house manager. And then we have a couple other people that aren't in my family. But before hiring me, everybody knew I was an addict. They knew I had been to rehab. And the fact that they like still trusted me enough to like give me a chance to to take care of this woman, like meant a lot to me. And it made me not want to fuck it up. And I haven't fucked it up. And I don't plan on fucking it up. 
I'm that's glad. I'm really happy for you. Thank you. I'm really happy for you. So getting towards the end here, my question to you is: Do you have any advice for people watching and listening? Um, my biggest thing would be like when I was in active addiction, I thought I had all these friends. I had more friends in active addiction than I did when I was sober. And those people aren't your friends. I know a lot of people think like they have all these friends when they're in active addiction that they use with like, those people aren't your friends. They're quite literally like, if they're not in addiction themselves, they're preying on your downfall, watching you consume drugs in your body every day. Because friends like do not want to see their other friends like possibly die from an overdose or fall into addiction like those aren't friends and that's what I wish I realized when I was in active addiction that these people that supply me with drugs or I have fun with every night aren't my friends that they either have a problem themselves or they are wishing on my downfall so that's my biggest thing some good advice you got there So is there anything else that you want to throw throw in or add in here? Just that drugs are not the answer and never will be the answer. Your problems aren't drugs. Your solution is drugs. And you need to find a different solution. This is true. This is, I remember this great thing that somebody once said is that drugs aren't technically the problem because a lot of people take these drugs and don't get addicted to it. It's some of mm-hmm. us get addicted and it's why do we get addicted? What's going yeah. on in our heads? Yeah. And then, uh, there's one more thing. I remember like TikTok is a really big thing right now. And there's a big trend going around it. Like it's like basically that makes it a trend to be addicted to cocaine. Like being an addict is a trend. And I like made a video. I made a video and I was like, having a coke addiction is neither cute nor trendy. Like, it's not a fun thing. It's horrible. Like, it ruins lives. And there are people in my comments talking about, oh, like, no, it is trendy. It's a cute thing. And I'm like, where are you hearing this? And then my other thing was someone commented, like, you do realize, like, people can do coke and stuff and not get addicted to it. And I'm like, normal people do not do painkillers for fun. Normal people do co- don't do cocaine for fun. Like, that's not a thing. I don't know when like horrible, dangerous drugs got normalized as recreational drugs, but normal people don't do that. Normal people don't take prescription drugs for fun. You know what I mean? Yeah, they don't feel like they have the need for it. Exactly. It's great perspective. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely something we always have to think about is that most people, like you said, if they're doing drugs, they're doing it for a reason. I can see it being trendy to start and try it, but to continue doing it to the point where it destroys your life, there's a reason for that. There's some exactly. underlying pain. Exactly. Well, I think this has been a great interview. I like uh, everything. Well, I don't want to say like it because it was a hard story, but yeah. I appreciate <laughs> you sharing it with us. Yeah, of course. I would love to. All right, so that was it for you. But for everybody watching, listening, if you like what you heard and saw, go below and give us a like. Also, subscribe. You'll see when we upload new videos and interviews that we do weekly. You can also check us out on Twitter, Reddit, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. Also, check out our website, addicts-anonymous.com. On there, you'll see a resources tab, which has plenty of different resources, no matter what your addiction is. And if you also look, we have an improved literature tab where you'll see a ton of different articles and pieces of literature that we have available for free. That's all I have for today. And until next time.